0: Over in 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 Russia, uh, dachshund is that how you say it? It's it's such a weird name for a dog. It's it's dachshund, but I know we don't pronounce it that way. Anyway, a dachshund named Masha uh, keeps coming back to a hospital, and it's been two years. This dachshund has been coming to the hospital every day, and she's been looking for her master, her human. And her human happened to go to the hospital a couple years ago, and he remained in the hospital, being treated, eventually died in the hospital, and she just keeps coming, looking for this, for this man. Somebody tried to adopt her, and she escaped and ended up back at the hospital. And so the, the hospital employees just make sure she's fed and watered, and she comes and goes as she pleases. One of the most famous stories of a loyal dog is the story in Japan of Hachiko. Have you heard the story of Hachiko? There's a, a movie made out of this story. And, and the basic outline of the story is that uh, Hachiko would go with her human, uh, a doctor, professor rather, who we know, and she would go with him to the train station and he would leave. She'd watch him leave. She'd go home um, or he. I actually don't know. Um, and then uh, in the evening, come back and uh, meet uh, Uino at the, the train station and, and walk with him back to, the, to their house. Well, um, one day in 1925, the professor didn't come back. He'd suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and ended up dying at work. But Hachiko kept coming. For nine years, Hachiko went to the train station each afternoon waiting for his owner to come home. He'd wait there until the last train left the station and then he'd go home. Hachiko died in 1935, and the Japanese remember Hachiko as a symbol of faithfulness and loyalty, and they've even made a statue of him in that city to remind themselves of this beautiful example of loyalty. We've been looking at the stories of Jesus' lineage, all these people that that are in Jesus' family tree. And over and over again, we've come across these promises, covenants, the Bible has called them, promises that God has made to people uh, like Adam and Eve, uh, for example. He, he told Eve that uh, he would preserve their life, he would remain faithful to them even though they had rebelled against him, and, and he, would, he promised them a redeemer. He was faithful and loyal. Even when all the earth was wicked, he preserved the human race through Noah and his family. He promised Abram that he would bless the whole world through him, uh, even promised that he would give his own life to make sure those promises, those covenants were fulfilled. This is God's faithful love. Turn to Exodus chapter 33, and you'll find a, a piece of this story. I feel like I'm, I'm a bit hot, a L- little ringing going on. Can you guys hear a ringing? <laughs> okay, we'll turn that down just a tiny bit. Exodus 33 chapter, or verse 19. And in the story, Israel is out the mount, um, at Mount Sinai. God has shown himself, uh, revealed the Ten Commandments. Moses is on the mountain now, and uh, Moses had asked God if he could see his glory. And in verse 19, he said, "'I will make all my goodness pass before you and will, pro- proclaim your, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy.'" Now, just a few verses later, chapter 34, verse 4, or verse 6, rather. He's put, God has put Moses into this crack in the rock, put his hand over him, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If you haven't yet underlined that, you should probably do that, underline steadfast love. That's a really important phrase abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That, that phrase, steadfast love, is a word, a single word in Hebrew, Has said You guys have heard the word before. It's uh, not an uncommon word, but I, I want you to think about it. It's that steadfast love or loyal love. And there's lots of stories in the Bible about God's loyal love, but the one that I think um, exemplifies it, oozes this said, is the story of Ruth. So turn with me to Ruth chapter one, and we're going to just look at this outline of a story and find these places where God has shown his loyal love. It all started with a famine in Israel, and if you know anything about Deuteronomy, you'll remember that the God had told Israel, stay faithful to me and I will bless your land. Uh, rebel against me, seek after idols, and you're going to have um, some bad things happen. One time he said that that he would uh, make the sky like iron. No rain would fall. And uh, you probably remember the story of Elijah, right? Well, this is a similar time. Um, it's during the time of the judges and Israel has apparently uh, followed after idols. Um, it's probably around at least 50 years before David was born, maybe a little bit more. And so we're talking about the time um, maybe of Samuel just getting started, something in that range. And there's a famine in the land. Well, let's do a thought experiment. If Israel has been told, stay faithful and I'll bless you, rebel and you'll suffer, and you're facing a famine in Israel, what should you do? What's the right thing to do? Repent and pray. Repent and pray to God, seek Him, and and He's promised to provide. That's the correct solution. Uh, But Elkanah and his family were struggling, and their farm had stopped producing, and so instead of praying and and in seeking the Lord, they sold their property for pennies on the dollar and left. And they started just marching away, trying to find a place that had some food. They ended up stopping in Moab, t- taking whatever possessions they could, probably what they could haul on their back. And maybe they had a, a donkey. Maybe there was a cart involved, right? We're not talking about a moving truck like, like I'm taking in a, a little bit here, but well, you know, whatever they could ha- take. And they were in, in financial difficulty at the moment. Moab, the man Moab, is the, um, how would we say, inappropriately conceived son of Lot, Abram's nephew. I'll leave the story at that. But, but we know that uh, a while later, Moab's children became the nation of Moab. And they were not a, a friendly group towards Israel and, and they were idolatrous and had all kinds of problems. The, the one story that sticks out is the story when Israel was coming into the land of Canaan. Um, and, uh, well, Moab was scared of Israel. And so they called Balak to come. And Balak comes and, and he, he can't curse them like they wanted him to. And, and so they end up, uh, cons- they put together this plan to, to get the Israelite men into idolatrous worship. And and that's kind of what I I wonder might be happening in this environment between uh, Bethel and uh, and Moab. Maybe Elkanah uh, and and that group is is in line with Moab's thinking on on paganism uh, more than with their thinking about God. And so they're welcomed into Moab at that moment, but they're not. Moab has generally not been friendly with Israel. It doesn't appear the Bible doesn't say so, but it doesn't appear that Elkanah is following God's path. And I think it's telling that the Bible doesn't say that Elkanah abandoned God. I'm sorry, Elimelech. I don't know why I have Elkanah here. (laughs) I somehow put that in there. Anyway, I don't know why it is that uh, it doesn't say that Naomi and and her family had abandoned God. Um, It just says that they went to Moab. And leaves the rest for our imagination the the, the author doesn 't rebuke them. it just well, I guess it just leaves us with the results because shortly after arriving in Moab, naomi 's husband dies, and then his uh, or her sons marry a couple Moabite women, which again you 're not supposed to do you don 't marry outside of Israel. And so they marry a couple of Moabite women, and, and within 10 years, both of those sons have died. And that leaves Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, all of them widows, all of them in desperate need of help. There's no one to provide for them, no wage earner in the family. Naomi's in a foreign country. She doesn't have any property. There's, there's nothing that she has that would um, preserve their life. Now I want to, there's a concept in Ruth that keeps coming back, and it's this idea of a redeemer. And so I just want to give you a little bit of biblical background. The first time the concept of a redeemer comes up in the Bible is Genesis chapter 48. And in Genesis 48, 16, uh, Jacob is blessing Joseph's two sons. And uh, he says, "'The angel who has redeemed me from all evil "'bless the boys.'" and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, uh, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Sometime later, when the Israelites were struggling in slavery, God makes them a promise in Exodus chapter 6. He says, I am the Lord. I will bring you from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with with great acts of judgment. God is from the very beginning, presented as the Redeemer. But he also invites people into his Redeemer kind of role. And so we find that a Redeemer was the family member who could buy back property and members of the family who'd been sold into slavery um, during whatever time of hardship that they had experienced. A Redeemer could buy them back. A Redeemer was the nearest kinsman who received the restitution for a wrongful death. And a redeemer was the one who was responsible for providing an heir uh, should a man die without anyone to inherit his family's property. Redeemers are life and death intervention. You don't need a redeemer unless you're in com- really a hopeless situation. Now imagine the experience of Naomi. Her property's been sold off, her income earning husband and sons are now dead. She's responsible for these two daughters-in-law. She has no money, no inheritance to give them, no children to help provide uh, heirs. She was, in, she was empty and in desperate need. In her mind, she left comparably full when she left Bethlehem to go to Moab. And now she is, she's got nothing. She's empty. Now, some people call Naomi the female Job of the Bible because she ended up losing everything. But unlike Job, Naomi was powerless. Job had lands, and he's a man. Naomi has nothing, no lands, and she's a woman in a man's world. The Bible never suggests that Job did anything wrong, but Naomi, on the other hand, we have some suggestion that maybe maybe she's not following the path of God. Maybe she lost everything after having mistrusted God. And in her perspective, she deserved all that God did to her. She deserved his wrath. I think it's important for us to recognize her circumstance, because when we really see that she's in this desperate situation spiritually and financially and relationally, um, we see that she needs a Redeemer. And that's kind of the case for us too. It's when we realize our great need that a Redeemer is possible for us. But as long as we think like, oh, we're, we're cool, you know, uh, we've got uh, a place to live, family to fall back on, a job, a pension. Um, we've got our, our wits, our intelligence, our, our good old American grit. We can do this. We've got control of this situation. When we feel like there's hope and there's, we've got control, well, then we rely on ourselves. We don't need a Redeemer. And the same goes for us spiritually. Uh, the Bible in Revelation 3 describes a church that's in this situation, the spiritual mindset of, I've got things under control, thank you. Um, Revelation 3.17, God says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And and sometimes we can have this perception in ourselves that that we're okay, Um, spiritually, financially, whatever, we're okay, we don't need help. But really, we are lost and condemned to death, we are sold into the slavery of sin. And without a Redeemer, our only condition is one leading to death. And that's something we need to recognize. We are in Naomi's situation, hopeless and helpless, unless somebody else steps in to help us, a Redeemer. And we see a glimmer of hope when after setting out with her daughters-in-law, to Israel. She had heard that there is food in the land again, and so she starts walking towards um, Israel. And with her daughters-in-law, Naomi tells Orpah and Ruth to return to their families because she doesn't have anything for them. She can't provide them an inheritance. She can't uh, have more kids. Um, it's just not going to be a good thing for them. Go back home, she says. And, and Ruth says, no. Look at Ruth chapter 1 verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or return to, from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth does something incredible in this exchange. She takes on the responsibility of helping and caring for and being um, a, a daughter to Ruth, even though she recognizes that she's going to go to a land that will despise her, to a place where she has no inheritance, and to a responsibility of providing where she has no way of providing. She gives up everything in order to be a blessing to her mother-in-law. This is an example of Hesed, that loyal love that says, no matter what, I'm going to sacrifice in order to continue to show you love. And this is the first instance, but it goes all through this this book, lots of examples of loyal love. Now, I'd like to point out something about this idea, this hesed idea. This isn't the kind of love that you have when things are going well. When when everything's um, happy and nice, uh, it's just love, right? But it's when things get difficult, when things are hard, when the problems come, that's when you start to realize, no, no, this is loyal love. This is self-sacrificing love. This is a special kind of love. This concept appears all through the life and Psalms of King David. In Psalm 6, 4, he says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Psalm 26, 3, for your steadfast love is before your, my eyes, I, and I walk in your faithfulness. Or Psalm 3210, where he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. It's in trouble and trial and problems that you really need love. And that's when real love shows itself to be steadfast and loyal. It's easy to have the appearance of love when things are fine, when everybody agrees, when there's, there's no conflict. But it's when there's problems, when there's conflict, where sacrifice is required, where forgiveness and grace are needed, that's where love really shows up. Think about our church environment. Just another thought experiment. Are there ever times where we can have disagreements and let those disagreements create divisions? Just as an example, we have this decision the business committee made about a building project, and you might not like it. If you, you know, had your druthers, you'd go a different direction, right? Now, that the possibility is that that difference could create division, or it may be that uh, there's a long-standing relational divide, a, a family that you don't really get along with that, that well, and you kind of come to church anyway, but, um, you know, you, you, you keep your distance, right? Those kinds of things can happen in church families. They can happen in in, uh, biological families, divisions and differences and conflicts and struggles. And it's in the context of church life, of relational um, conflict, that we get to see either love shine forth or selfishness and sin Notice the words that Jesus used when he described his followers in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The word Jesus used for this is the Greek equivalent of hesed. It's a word that you probably have heard before, agape. In in Greek, agape is this selfless, self-sacrificing love, and it's the exact same idea as the faithful, loyal love of God, the hesed of God. Jesus says that you're going to know that these people are mine when they show self-sacrificing love. What if God had given up on Naomi? When she had left and abandoned the, the Israelites that she was um, born into, when she had gone to this pagan country, when she would pursued her own well-being, um, even though God had said, trust me, repent and surrender, I've got your, your well-being in mind. She went off to do her own thing. God could have left her there, couldn't he? Just said, fine, you know, you picked your your, um, results. That's what you get. You blew it. But he didn't give up on her. Instead, he gave her a daughter-in-law who would show her his faithful love. And, And when she was thinking, God hates me, God is bitter with me, I mean, she came back to Bethlehem and told the women of the town, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For God, the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Look at her. She's pointing to God and saying, he is not faithful to me. He he has brought me back empty. He has done bitterly to me. Naomi and Ruth arrived back in the time of the harvest and... We don't know where they lived. The Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, Maybe she put up a a makeshift shelter on the edge of town. Maybe she stayed with one of those friends that she met when she came into town and uh, was hanging out in 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 their shed or you know some lean-to by their house or something like this. We don't really know. But whatever it was, it was a meager situation. Fortunately, God had told the Israelites that. If there was poor people in their midst, that they should leave the, the grain that drops on the ground and leave the edges and the corners for them to, to glean so that they could uh, have some food and provide for themselves. And this was a time, apparently, when the people had come back to God and were following him again. And so they were honoring these rules that God had made for helping the poor. And Naomi knew about these rules and told Ruth, go and glean in the fields. And Ruth found a field where the owner was willingly following God's plan. And he he not only um, had her glean in his field, but he'd even tell his servants um, that were doing the the work, he would say, drop some extra behind you so she has enough. And, And she ends up with like, 29 pounds of, of grain that she takes home that day. The story of Ruth and Boaz progresses, and you can see that he's obviously smitten with her. Uh, one day at the end of the harvest, Ruth followed Naomi's advice and came to the foot of Boaz's makeshift bed at the you know where the piles of, of grain had been stored there. And uh, she boldly invites Boaz to become her redeemer, which brings out an interesting concept. Redemption isn't something that's forced. Redemption is something that's offered or invited. But there's a choice in this. And our, our choice, when we recognize our great need, we can come to the Redeemer. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, Boaz said, Who are you? Who, who's there at my bed? And she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a Redeemer. Redeemer. In the Song of Solomon, uh, the the woman in that story, the Shunammite, says, His banner over me is love. His wings over me are love. And that's this concept of a Redeemer spreading out His covering, His protection, His, His redemption over you. Being Ruth's Redeemer would be a complicated thing. First of all, Israel was apparently in a time of repentance and God had said, don't marry foreigners. Boaz is careful to tell Ruth, you're a you're a, um, a woman of character, you're noble, everybody knows that you're helping your, your mother, everybody knows that you've adopted the God of Israel. And he, it's almost like he's saying this because if she hadn't, boy, this would be really, really hard to be her redeemer. If, if he were to marry the Moabite, what would everybody else say? Who's, you know, just recently experienced this famine and, and has recently turned back to God. And not only would it be marrying a Moabite, but also he would have to give his money for paying off the, uh, Naomi's debts and, and purchasing back the land. And not only that, but he wouldn't be able to keep the land. It would go to the firstborn son of Ruth, which would later in, in Ruth, we find that Naomi ends up basically being the mother, right? She's, this son is attributed to Naomi and ends up taking as his inheritance, uh, Naomi's family's inheritance. So Boaz would have to pay for this property and then give it away essentially to somebody else's family. There's nothing in it for him. There's a key moment in the story when, when Boaz agrees to become Ruth's redeemer, but he, he has to deal with this other relative, a kinsman who is closer than he. And so he goes to the city gates. He invites this guy to sit down. It's Ruth chapter 4, verse 1 and, and, and following. And um, so he, he comes to this near-relative um, and he says, turn aside, friend, sit down here, and he turned aside and sat down, and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here, and they all sat down around in the circle, and, and then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the, the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of, of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech, uh, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then redeem it, but if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. So the man says, I'll redeem it. Sure, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz adds, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetrate perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the, the guy is like, uh, no, no, never mind, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This little bit of the story helps us realize that this is not Boaz getting something. You know, we think, oh, he's in love with Ruth. Well, he's getting a wife, the, um, somebody that he loves. Or, um, well, it's property. He spends money on it, and he gets it, acquires it, it becomes part of his family. But those weren't true. Um, Yes, he loved Ruth, but this was a self-sacrificing thing that he was going to do. The closer relative was interested when it served him, but Boaz was interested in serving Naomi and Ruth. Ruth. This is the, the fundamental idea with loyal love, with Hesed, with agape. It's giving not for your own gain, but for the benefit of the ones that you love. This is what Jesus did. He, he came and he took the penalty of our sin and he died on the cross. Not for his own gain, but for our redemption. He redeemed us. Love runs to help. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 18, Naomi hears what Boaz had said to Ruth at the threshing floor, and, uh, and she says, uh, in verse 18, she says, The man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Love runs to solve a problem. It, it, it generously pursues reconciliation and healing. When I think about this, this love that Boaz expressed, I can't help but thinking about Jesus. Boaz is a type of Christ. In The Desire of Ages, Ellen White says, those who accept Christ as their Savior are not left as orphans to bear the trials of life alone. He receives them as members of the heavenly family. He bids them call his father their father. They are his little ones, dear to the heart of God, bound to him by the most tender and abiding ties. He has towards them an exceeding tenderness as far surpassing what our father or mother has felt towards us in our helplessness as the divine is above the human. The work of redeeming us and our inheritance lost through sin fell upon him who is near of kin to us. It was to redeem us that he became our kinsman. Closer than father, mother, brother, friend, or lover is the Lord our Savior. Fear not, he says, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. What shall account for the great love wherewith he has loved us? What We cannot understand it. We cannot know it true. Uh, We can know it true in our own experience. Jesus redeemed us. He called us by name. He said, you're mine. And he brought us into a family. Just kind of like Boaz brings Ruth into his family. Boaz is the inheritor of the promise of the Messiah. And when he brings Ruth into that story as her redeemer, she becomes the mother of the great, 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 great grandmother Father of Jesus. She's part of God's story because of Boaz's redemption. And you and I are part of God's story, his family, because of Jesus' redemption for us. In Isaiah 44, God says, I have blotted out your transgression like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing, O mountains. O oh, forest and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. The Lord has redeemed you. And if he's redeemed you, then you're part of this family. And if you're part of God's family, then look around you. We're all brothers and sisters, right? And sometimes families have conflicts. Families have problems. But families, there's something about a family. Loyalty is part of the... Part of the package, right? You know how you can, you can fight with your brother and sister, but if somebody comes in and wants to hurt your, your brother or your sister, well, you're going to fight with them and protect your brother or sister, right? There's a family loyalty that exists, and, and I, God is inviting us. If Jesus has given so much for us, if he sacrificed his life, if um, somebody like Boaz would give all of his wealth in order to redeem and show Hesed for the, their family, then shouldn't we also express that same kind of self-sacrificing loyal love laying down our preferences even our money our time our you know all of those things to express forgiveness and kindness and grace and generosity towards those that god has put in our family and yet sometimes we're all too eager to lay down the conflict, to run away and not seek reconciliation, to find a different church to go to that um, fits our paradigm just a little bit better. Um, Whatever it is, we're all too eager to run away when God has invited us to run towards the need. Boaz loved when it was hard. Boaz eagerly engaged when it was not in his favor let's do another thought experiment, this idea of hesed or agape. If everybody in this church expressed that kind of loyal love for each other, what would this church look like? What would be different about this church? A marriage on the rocks can feel hopeless, almost like a Texas standoff where you've got two people on either side of the of the, the road, and, and uh, they're pointing their guns at each other, fingers on a hair trigger, um, ready to protect themselves from the other one in the relationship. You've, if it hasn't been you, you've at least seen a relationship like this, right? Now, the only way that that relationship gets healing, the only way there's hope for a, a marriage on the rocks like that is if one of them, ideally both, but if at least one of them begins to express loyal love. You got to put down the gun. You got to take away all of the potential for harming the other person and instead reach out in generous, forgiving, graceful love. And in that context, the relationship can have a complete turnaround. Love can exist again and and loyalty can grow and the other person can put down their um, defensive weapons. The same is true in our church environment. Our love grows when we self-sacrificially give grace and forgiveness to others. When in spite of being hurt before we pursue relationship again to see can it work, right? We 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 give kindness when we get bitterness. You have been redeemed. Go redeem somebody else. You have been given loyal love. Go give loyal love to your brothers and sisters. I want to see a church family that is filled with this kind of loyal love. How about you? Amen. (laughs) Would you stand with me? And let's sing a song about redemption. It's called Redeemed, number 337.